Thank you, Linda. Join me in a word of prayer, please, this morning. Lord, we're opening your word now, and as we do that, we pray that your spirit would speak to us clearly, that you would find us obedient and responsive to your leadership as we hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I haven't been to IHOP in a while. I do kind of miss those breakfasts. They do really, really good omelets there. Uh, a couple of times ago, though, when we did go, our, a couple of our granddaughters were here from Oklahoma, so we took them and their mom to IHOP. And I tried to convince my youngest granddaughter that IHOP was changing their name from IHOP to UHOP. And I said that in order to get your breakfast, you had to hop around the restaurant and do one lap hopping before they would serve you. I even got the server, the waitress, to play along with this. I asked her, hey, you guys are changing your name to, to U-Hop, right? She said, oh, yeah, it's going to be U-Hop. Well, it was just one more instance for my grandchildren of suffering from SES, severe eye-rolling syndrome. Um, I have four things in my cooking repertoire. I have grilled cheese, baked salmon, anything with microwave instructions, and chocolate chip pancakes. I think my chocolate chip pancakes are okay, but I think they don't quite stack up to the IHOP chocolate chip pancakes. IHOP does a really good job with those pancakes. All kinds of wondrous varieties. And for those of you who are tempted right now to just leave your home and go to IHOP, don't. Stay right where you are. IHOP, though, they do this other thing, that they have the regular-sized portions of pancakes, which are about the size of the Empire State Building, covered with butter and syrup cascading down the sides, and then they offer what they call a short stack, which is not quite as many many pancakes as you get in the normal Empire State Building-sized stack of pancakes. They're still delicious, there's just fewer of them. Now... I don't know what you're thinking about, primarily, as we move further into the Lenten season in our anticipation of the celebrations of Good Friday and Easter. We're in the second Sunday of Lent. But I think what we're supposed to be focusing on, reflecting on most, is all that Jesus is for us, all he's done on our behalf. And we've touched base on that over the last seven weeks as we've been in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Each day, each Sunday, you remember that one of the things that was in our kind of template, in our outline, was a a specific thing that Jesus said about himself to each one of those churches along the way. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to more specifically focus on those things that the Bible tells us about Jesus in those two chapters of that book of Revelation, those two things. And trust me, folks, when we unpack these things, this ain't no short stack. This is the full thing. And we're called to be thankful for all that Jesus is to us and for us. And what's going to happen this morning is I'm going to read the pertinent passage from each of those chapters, each of those letters as we move along. So I'm going to encourage you to open up your Bibles at home and start with me for the first church on this stack, the church of Ephesus, chapter 2 in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus says this, he describes himself this way. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What's this seven stuff all about? This is about the totality of Jesus being present in the middle of his church. 
This is about him holding a firm grip on it. This is about him being invested in its well-being, both the church corporately and the church as individual persons who make up the body of Christ and the little local bodies of Christ around the world. Jesus has, according to this verse, an incredible investment in the health of his church. And he's in it to stay. I don't know if you remember in the news a couple of weeks ago, there was this big stock market brouhaha over stocks associated with the, the outfit GameStop. They sell, you know, electronic games and those kinds of things. And apparently some or, or a rabble of not professional investors got in the mix of this thing and they threw everything off by uh, elevating the price of the stock of GameStop, the GameStop. But what happens in investing is this. When people see at something's potentially at risk, when they see a potential danger of them losing their money, losing their investment, they get out as quickly as they can. Jesus, according to this verse, to Ephesus, has invested his very life in the church. And he is not abandoning it ever. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if you have given your life to Christ, he is He has invested his very life in you. And he's not ever going to abandon you. He is in it with you. Whatever it might be. And it can look like a catastrophe. It can look like a worldwide pandemic. It can look like an economic crash. It can look like a really bad report that you've done for school and you didn't get the grade that you wanted. Whatever level of catastrophe you want to call it. He is in it with you if you've given your life to him. He was in it with Ephesus. He's in it with us. The second on this stack is the letter to the church at Smyrna, chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 8. I don't know if you've heard of the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Regis Philbin uh, pioneered that TV show as its MC. Jimmy Kimmel is the host of the show now. When they're quizzing the contestants, and they, uh, they, they, the contestants give their answer to a specific question. The host always asks, is that your final answer? Well, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, here's what Jesus says about himself. He is the first and the last. He was dead and came to life. Jesus is God's final answer. The only unbreakable lifeline. The resurrection, which we're going to celebrate at Easter, proves it. And it seems to be to me that it's really good for us to remember this when things seem to be heading in the wrong direction, that we should be holding on to the right thing. Jesus, the first and the last. Sometimes we hold on to things that don't quite have the durability and perseverance of the person and work of Jesus. Sometimes... We hold on to our physical health, which will fail eventually. Sometimes we hold on to a really good job, which we can lose pretty darn quickly. Sometimes we hold on to the prospects of advancement. Sometimes we hold on to a really good GPA in school. Sometimes we hold on to all kinds of things. Things, things, things. All have expiration dates. Jesus, no expiration date. The first and the last. The third on the stack was the letter to the church at Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus is described this way. 
him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, I don't know if you remember. We'll find out when we uh, administer the final exam for this series. I don't know if you remember that this is a reference to power in a city of power. Pergamum was a capital of a Roman province and, and therefore held a civic authority, military authority for that province. And so this reference that Jesus uses, this business about a sharp two-edged sword, is a reference to power, ultimate power. Every night I recharge my iPhone. All day long I watch the power percentage drop. Every week, I, put, I watch the gas gauge in my car go down. Every couple of weeks, I fill it up. Every power source that we have winds down. Our sun, on the surface, nearly 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 93 million miles from the Earth. The sunlight takes about 8 minutes and 19 seconds to get here. And that light energizes nearly everything on Earth. It seems like it will last forever. But ask any astronomer how many dead stars there are out there. The winter storm hit last week. This morning we were on the Sunday morning Bible study call, the Zoom call with the folks there. and We were all celebrating the fact that it's a toasty 40 degrees out today. Because a couple of weeks ago it felt like 30 below. And as bad as we had it here with a couple of minor power outages for a couple of hours each time, praise God you weren't living in Texas during that period of time. Because what happened? They lost power. They lost water. All of those things that sustain life, which are a function of being relying on power, they had to scramble and try to figure out how to recover from those things. And several people, I think about 35 or 40 people, lost their lives because they lost power. All of this is to say that all of those things that we look to on a regular basis that we think have uh, a long-term power for us, the battery that lasts forever, well, at some point, it all wears out. But Jesus, his power is infinite. And Jesus wanted to make sure that the folks in Pergamum knew who in the face of Roman power looked like they were overwhelmed, he wanted to make sure that they knew that he had ultimate real power. And he wants to make sure that you and I know that whatever power source we rely on that is not him will ultimately fail. Power to change hearts and minds and set new courses in people's lives. Power to tap into when it is rough. I don't know what power you're relying on, but if it's not Jesus, it's going to wear out. And then the fourth on the stack is the letter to the church at Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 18, and and we'll camp on verse 23 for a minute. In chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus describes himself as the Son of God. And this is the only time this phrase is used in the book of Revelation. And when he uses this, he's, the, he's emphasizing the majesty of his position in the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. He is all that God is. And in verse 23, he's the one that searches hearts and minds. He, in verse 18, he has eyes like a flame of fire. He, he, he pursues evil and he deals with it. The Lord is patient but not inexhaustibly so. 
The church had given, Jesus had given this church time to repent, but the church had not. Now, I've mentioned several times, probably to the point of annoyance with you, but I'm going to do it anyway, how much I get really annoyed during football games when they stop the clock because somebody stepped their toe out of bounds or somebody dropped the ball or somebody accidentally bumped into somebody they shouldn't have. They stop the clock, they have to have a conversation about it, and 25 minutes later, they get back to playing the game. Well, eventually, Jesus is going to stop the clock. And when he does that, you and I, we all need to be ready for it. So here's the question that might be a little annoying this morning. If Jesus stopped your clock right now, would you be ready to see him? If Jesus stopped your clock right now, would it be the case that you had put faith and trust in him? And so that when the earthly clock was stopped, you'd be entering into a present, the presence of Jesus where there's no clock that's going to stop. What if the clock stopped right now? At 11.03 on a Sunday morning, the last Sunday in February of the year 2021. What if it stopped right now? The fifth on the stack is the letter to the church at Sardis, chapter 3, beginning at the first part of verse 1. And the number seven is going to show up again. He who has the seven spirits of God... This is a reference to being a full member of the Trinity and the seven stars. This is, again, as a, as a, an, a reference to the presence of Jesus by his spirit among the churches. Together, these things come together to talk about the full range of the divine presence of power of Christ in the church. Remember Matthew chapter 28, verse 20? I am with you always to the very end of the age. Loneliness is an emotion that we all feel from time to time, time to time, even those tough people among us that try to pretend that we don't. We all feel it from time to time because it's a, it's, a, it's a sense, an emotional sense of a lack of connection. The truth of the matter is that in Christ we can be lonely, but we're never alone. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, um, I uh, used to uh, observe Sesame Street when it was, the TV was on in the house and the kids were watching it. I never actually watched it much myself, but I did observe it being on. I, I, I saw the character, the cookie monster. I am not a cookie monster. I do like the occasional Oreo cookie. You know the Oreo cookie, right? The, the, with the, the dark chocolate outside and the, the sweet center inside. Hear me carefully. Jesus is the sweet center of the church. If there's no Jesus, there's no church. No matter what we call ourselves, no matter what we say about ourselves, no matter how we feel about ourselves, no matter how we describe ourselves, if there's no Jesus, there's no church. If there's no Jesus, there's no Christian. Without Jesus, the church is just a couple of dry cookies. Missing the sweet center. 
So the question for us as we move forward into 2021 is what are we doing personally, what are we doing collectively to make sure that Jesus is the sweet center of our Christian existence? What is it that he would have us adjust? What is it that he would have us consider discarding so that we can more purposefully focus on him as we move forward in 2021? Well, the sixth on the stack is the church at Philadelphia. And you're excited about the sixth one because you know that after the sixth one is the seventh one, and he's got to be done after that one. The sixth on the stack is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Verses 7 and 8 in chapter 3, Jesus is described as the one who is holy, without spot or blemish. He's described as the one who is true, therefore he is reliable. And he's also described as he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. This is a reference to authority, absolute sovereign authority. 2020, we had an election year, and uh, we got all riled up about it. Many of us did in many different ways, and it turned out that there were some really horrific outcomes of being riled up about it. But I think we need to keep in mind, as believers in Jesus, that earthly authorities come and they go. They come and they go. But this one, this Jesus who has authority, is permanent. And because he is absolutely sovereign and permanent, he does what he wills. And because he is absolutely in control of his kingdom, you and I, We can relax in the care of the completely reliable one, the one who holds absolute power, the one who loves us, and the one who is purposefully invested in bringing about God's own purposes in our lives. When my children were smaller, I was always the babysitter's favorite customer. The reason is this. I paid babysitters really, really well. I mean, I was in the military at the time, and I can remember in in Germany we had a a cadre of babysitters that we used, and they always, they'd call us up. Need a babysitter tonight? Because the people around us, they pay them like 50 cents an hour. And I, of course, this was a while ago when 50 cents was worth more than it, it is today, but nonetheless... I'd pay babysitters three, four, five bucks an hour. You can see why I was their favorite. But here's my rationale. What could be possibly a more important job on the planet than paying somebody to take good care of your kids? Is there another job that's more important than that? Think about that the next time you run into your kids or grandkids' teachers. Could there be a more important job? Placing kids in their care. So I paid them really, really, really well so that they would care for the kids really, really, really well. And I could relax when I went out, not thinking about whether there was going to be some kind of uh, disaster related to the babysitter not paying attention to what was going on. Well, what's that all have to do with Philadelphia? I think it has this, that you and I can relax in the care 
of Jesus. I think it means that you and I can confidently confidently place our loved ones in their care. I've said this so many times to people who have suffered from from loss of uh, dear family members or friends. And and, uh, as I've experienced some of those losses, I've tried to hear it myself. Um, Do we really think that we loved our dad or our mom more than Jesus loves our dad or our mom? Do we really think that? Because if our dad or our mom or the person who's close to us, if that person's in relationship with Jesus, they are the object of his eternal love and care. And so I think we can, man, we should relax a little bit. The world is not coming to an end on any schedule other than the schedule that Jesus has. And so we should relax in the care of the one who loves us. And then you think, I paid a big price for kids to watch my, for, for my kids to be watched by a babysitter. Think about the price that Jesus paid on the cross as we look towards Easter. Think about the price that God the Father paid so that you and I could be cared for. So that we can relax in his care. And now your favorite one, number seven, the church at Laodicea. Chapter three, verse 14. And, and this, is, this is really a, a good place to kind of bring this home. Jesus is described as the amen, the faithful and true witness. Amen. It's a word that's been translated from the biblical Hebrew into every language on the planet. Amen, it means let it be so. And when we talked about this last week, we put it in the context of all the promises that God has made to us that are fulfilled in the person of Christ. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, if we were meeting in person right now, which we are clearly not, I would stop here and ask you to hold up your hand and name some promises that you're holding on to today. But if you're watching our live stream through Facebook or through the website, you have the opportunity right there to name a promise that you are holding on to from Jesus, a promise from Jesus that you are holding on to today. I encourage you to do that because as you name the promise that you're holding on to, you'll be an encouragement to somebody else to hold on to that promise as well. Jesus is faithful and true, but he's also described in the letter to the church at Laodicea. He is the ruler of God's creation. We talked about this a little bit last week and we talked about who's the boss. When I was a basic military training squadron commander for the United States Air Force, one of the things the basic trainees had to do as they were entering into that first week, which was just some, you know, relaxing uh, kind of vacation away from home for most of them. As they entered into that first week, one of the things they had to do was memorize the chain of command in the military. From the president through the secretary of defense right down on to, to little old me as their squadron commander, they had to memorize that chain of command. And it they were subject to, well, what do we call them? Pop quizzes, uh, really low-pressure questions from their training instructors and other people. They'd stop them cold and say, what's the, what's the chain of command for you, airmen? 
and they'd have to name it all the way up through to the President of the United States. And if they didn't know the chain of command in those pop quizzes, well, there might have been some high-volume, one-sided conversations that resulted from that. They had to know or suffer the consequences. For the believer, hear me carefully, for the believer, Jesus is the real commander-in-chief. Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. So when we mistakenly placed, mistakenly placed ultimate allegiance to a political figure, to a sports figure, to a celebrity, to anybody else who might be elevated by our culture as an object worthy of our attention and our obedience, when we place our allegiance in those people, we have missed the truth of God's word, which has called us to be as believers in Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is the commander-in-chief. So the question this morning, after we kind of review these uh, seven letters to these seven churches, and we pull out these specific things that they say to us about Jesus, the question is this morning, here's the real question. To whom have you given your life? To whom have you given ultimate allegiance? To whom have you said, no matter what, I'm following you? These letters to these churches remind us that Jesus is the one to whom we owe that allegiance. And you remember last week when we talked about Laodicea? You, you do remember there was a last week? We could go Sunday. We, we did this on that day. I know they seem like they all blend together these days, but a week ago Sunday we were here and we were specifically talking about the conversation that Jesus had with the church at Laodicea. Do you remember? He was knocking on the door. This Lenten season, I just want to encourage you to give your life over completely to Jesus. To open that door and to let him in. I want to encourage us to stop playing around with our Christian faith. To stop putting it on and taking it off like it's something we wear to an appropriate occasion. But if it doesn't feel like it's an appropriate occasion, man, we put that stuff away. We don't want anybody to see that stuff. Jesus has called us to love him through and through. Jesus has called us to love him no matter what. Jesus has called us to love him in moments of discomfort and dis-ease. He's called us to love him even if our friends don't. He's called us to love him even if people laugh at us for loving him. He's called us to love him even if people take us away to jail or to prison to love him. And fortunately, in the United States of America, we're not there yet. But it's possible... Jesus has said, man, he is the way and the truth in our life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And I hope you'll hear with me this morning that as we look at what he said to these churches about himself, that we realize that his blessings, all of his blessings in our lives, this ain't no short stuff. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much.
for the gift of your word, and we thank you for the way your word speaks to us clearly. We pray this morning that as the word has spoken to us clearly, even despite whatever I've said that's gotten in the way of that communication, Lord, we pray that we would all understand that Jesus is knocking on the door. He has called us to open the door. He has called us to fullness of relationship with him. No part-time connection. Full immersion in a life that reflects the reality of Jesus. And so that's my prayer for each and every one of us this morning, that our lives would reflect the sweet, sweet center of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.